Thanks for listening to RQ's Device Love Podcast. You're about to listen to an audio only version of our weekly show, Device Love Live. If you're interested in having your questions answered live on a future episode, visit rqteam.com to see what topics are coming up and to register. We hope you enjoy this panel discussion, and if you do, please subscribe. So, pre subs. What do we call these meetings now? Pre subs or Q subs? And is there is there a difference between the two? Let me start with you, Kevin. Yeah, I can see how it's confusing because the pre-sub program merged into the QSUB program. So pre-subs are still a thing. It's just a type of QSUB meeting, just like submission issue meetings are a type of QSUB. So I think when you refer to it as a pre-sub, it's specifically for the Q submissions that are submitted prior to um, a regulatory submission. Okay. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so tell us- QSUB. Yeah, I call them a Q-sub, but uh, when I write the letter, I actually put the subtype in there. So it may be a pre-submission meeting, even though I called yeah. it a Q-sub. Yeah. I just can't get myself to say Q-sub. Yeah. I know, it doesn't <laughs> seem right. Yeah, seem right. So, uh, okay, uh, tell us, let's start with the fun stories. Tell us about any pre-sub meetings or requests gone wrong. And to clarify, we're not trying to focus on the negative. We're just sharing our experiences with the audience so they know what to expect and what can go awry. So who wants to yes. start, Carol? Uh, start? I have one. <laughs> I filed a pre-sub a few weeks ago for a remote patient monitor. I've done dozens of pre-subs, didn't think much about it, and I got an RTA letter. And I'm thinking, what? I don't understand here. So there were a couple points. Um, I proposed a product code, a, a predicate device, FDA, do you have any concerns? And in the letter it says um, that's outside the pre-sub process, Q-sub process. Um, the point of the process is not a pre-review of your submission. And I thought that was odd because that wasn't what I was trying to do. And then the other one was we laid out the bench test plan. So there's software validation, of course, cybersecurity, lots of functional testing, so a wide variety of, of bench testing. And FDA said that uh, it's difficult for them to address more than three to four substantial issues in a single pre-submission. So I was really caught off guard. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. we're gonna go back and reword the questions and, and get past it, I'm, I'm sure we will, but it was really an odd letter to get. So an RTA can be issued for a pre-sub request. Yes. Kevin, so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, in what, five and a half years in FDA, I don't think I've ever RTA won a pre-sub before. And they actually got rid of it for submission issue requests. And they were talking about getting rid of it for pre-subs at one point. So it's, especially for the types of questions, like I know in the new guidance, they mentioned eliminate the three to four topics just to lessen the like, burden on the reviewers. But all the questions that you laid out are actually listed in the new guidance examples of what you should be asking. So right. it's, that's very, very odd. And Any Carol, it didn't line up. Have... Yeah, like the answers didn't line up, right? Like, do you feel like they were just, didn't have time? Yeah. yeah, was there something going on? Maybe they're focusing more on the COVID type devices. Maybe pre-subs are taking a lower priority. It might be, I've heard there's some discussion with the whole, so I guess multiple, multiple factors playing into this. One, the TPLC load of, reviewers now having to post-market and pre-market, as well as the increased submissions during the COVID times, that if something needs to give, it might be some of these, um, 
I guess precepts are now Medufa tracks, but I guess maybe they're putting a little less time into the reviews for precepts to focus more on um, actual submissions like 510Ks or IDEs or PMAs or something. Hmm. Well, they gave us the the six month, you know, that, that statement, you have six months to respond to this RTA letter, like, okay. So like I said, we'll, we'll reword the questions because they say we can provide uh, comments or concerns. Yes, that's what I was asking for. So anyway, I know we'll get through it, but it was just odd. I, like I said, I've, I've filed a ton of these and never gotten an RTA for a precept before. Yeah. Yeah, I bet that resets the clock too on how quickly they're going to respond with a date because you haven't yes. started that clock ticking yet. So it was a nice yes. stall tactic. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Any other uh, stories of, of pre-subs gone wrong or requests gone wrong? I guess just in terms of good, bad, and different, or just my experiences with pre-subs. I mean, hearing about Carol's recent experience is sort of disheartening because uh, the whole reason or part of the reason why the pre-sub pro program is free is to incentivize companies to get this feedback. So when you get responses like that, uh, especially when the questions that you asked are almost verbatim from the guidance, is this predicate acceptable? Is this test plan acceptable? Those are verbatim from the guidance. Um, I've always been a huge advocate of the pre-sub, Q-sub program in general. Um, I know some consultants, some people are just anti-pre-sub. Um, they don't like the unknown associated with getting feedback from FDA. They'd rather take the risk of submitting their formal submission and taking the questions as they come while they're on FDA's clock. Uh, I, I personally don't subscribe to that position, um, especially for devices that are novel, that are not uh, easily, when the substantial equivalence argument is not easy, um, it is only beneficial to get that initial <laughs> feedback from FDA. So um, I, I'm a huge advocate of the program, uh, and I hope the, the types of responses that Carol got, just that that's a, an aberration. Certainly. Yeah, I would, I would say. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Nancy. Yeah, because what I've seen is when FDA says they really recommend you have a pre-sub, it's usually in your best interest to do so. Because I've had that other situation, right, where the client won't submit the pre-submission meeting. They want to go straight to that submission, and and that usually doesn't end well for them, right? <laughs> do the submission, and then all of a sudden that issue you should have addressed before the submission comes up in an AI letter that gets hard to resolve in the time frame that you have. So, yes, especially if you've got to do extensive animal testing or, you know, you can be well outside that 180 days. So I agree, much better to know up front uh, that there's going to be an issue. I always see that timing argument being made for IDEs. <laughs> They're saying if you submit an IDE, you're going to get feedback in 30 days. Why wait? 70 days for a pre-submission when you can get feedback from the FDA guaranteed within 30 days or it gets approved. Yeah. But you're right, if you get that AI, it's just, I feel like just it's a smoother process overall if you can get that clinical study design upright mm -hmm. first before going through that initial review. The yeah, concern I've heard from a few. I had one uh, person, one reviewer that told me, don't submit a pre-sub meeting because we're delayed and it's gonna take us more than three months to get you your meeting. Wow. So just submit your 
protocol and we'll respond in 30 days you'll get feedback a lot faster wow. <laughs> so that was that was a different right that was the opposite but the reviewer was up front and honest and said i can't mm -hmm. devote time to it so go do this <laughs> so i've heard the concern from a few clients that they feel like for the pre-sub that fda gets much more philosophical digs in more and they might go easier on something in an actual submission. How do you guys feel about that? Was there a difference in how you looked at the data? Hmm. I feel like during this COVID times, what I've been hearing, especially if it seems like attention is being focused away from Q-subs and more towards submissions, you might not, um, <clears throat> we might be seeing like the opposite, I guess, right? That less time is being spent mm -hmm. on it and they're gonna give more shallow level feedback. Um, but I wouldn't say, that's a tough question. I don't think I spend more time on pre-subs in general than a pre like mm -hmm. I think it's just when you are in a regular submission, you need to have very strong, concrete evidence of why you're asking for something. And you would think that the same would apply for a pre-sub. Like reviewers mm -hmm. wouldn't just be asking willy-nilly stuff in a pre-sub just because it's non-binding. Right. And I mean, the more you philosophize in a a pre-sub sort of uh, the whole idea of the pre-sub feedback that you give from the FDA perspective is to help make your reviewer easier when you do get that file back in house. So mm -hmm. it it's, I mean, you, you wanna get the information that you need to make for the, uh, for the case of 510Ks, a substantial equivalence discussion. So you don't want to, uh, you know, put on your smoking jacket and just kind of think about like these off the wall uh, engineering tests. That would be nice to know just from kind of a, an academic perspective. It's only gonna make your review that much harder. So if you if you tell the company exactly what you need, um, when you get that file back in house, uh, it just streams streamlines the review so much. It is so nice when companies listen to your feedback and say, "Hey Brian, we took your feedback. You can see it here, here, and here." It, the the review memo from the FDA side almost writes itself. So. Yeah, I think it depends too on the okay. submission quality, okay. right? If you ask a strong question, right, instead of saying oh, we think we need to do a clinical study. What do you think, FDA, right? Then you're yeah. going to get the wish list back. That's, you know, been my experience. Like if you give, if you throw out a broad question, you're going to get a broad response and that can take you down trails you don't want to go. So if you ask a real targeted, we're taking this trail on the left and we're going to go down four steps and this is why that's far enough. It, yeah. FDA can disagree, but at least you're not saying, Here's 10 trails we could go down. Which one do you like? <laughs> All right. That's a very so I point. gave a negative experience. So I'll, I'll give a positive one now. Um, so I've found pre-subs really helpful in the past. In fact, one we did last year was for a vascular catheter with a very specific indication for use. And we found the perfect predicate. I mean, perfect. Well, yeah, the problem is we need to do head-to-head -head testing and it's in limited market release. The client can't get samples. So as part of our pre-submission, we approached FDA about, hey, this is our problem. Could you look at K blah, blah, blah for us and look at that mm -hmm. test data? We'll submit data on our device if you can look at the, the other data to do that head-to-head mm -hmm. -head comparison. And they said, absolutely, we will do that. It's still your responsibility to show that you're safe and effective, but we'll absolutely look at that data for you. And then I've also had times where we laid out a bench mm -hmm. test plan Thought we had everything and they said no please do this test too and it wasn't onerous 
Um, so I think the pre-sub program has, has been really helpful. Good. Any other good case studies to share? I, I had my favorite this summer. I got a one-line response from FDA that says, we agree with your approach. <laughs> I want to frame <laughs> that and put it in my office because it was just such a beautiful letter response. But of course, I didn't trust it, so I had to ask the reviewer a question. Does that mean you agree with all of it? It's like, wasn't that clear? <laughs> like, okay, yeah, sorry. Just wanted to make sure, like. <laughs> but I really think it was a testament to the client that really had strong science behind it, right? They really spent a lot of time getting all the data and, and laying out their argument in a very scientific approach of how they were gonna tackle the, the situation and how they were gonna utilize the data that was available and the literature that was available. I mean, we had footnotes and bibliographies and everything to the precepts. So it was a pretty strong package. It's worth spending that time, I think. Good, so Kevin and Brian, did you ever get to review a submission like following the pre-sub, you know, that you reviewed? and you were able to see like a positive impact from doing the pre-sub? Yeah, so as a reviewer, I always preferred to take the subsequent submission after a pre-sub to the point where I would tell the sponsor, hey, let me know before you submit your, your, mm -hmm. submit, your actual submission so I can let my branch chief know or now assistant director or team lead know that I'm available to take it or just to try to free up some of my workload so I can take that file. So it does make the review a lot easier if you're already familiar mm -hmm. with the issues and the device and everything. Yeah, I mean, I did the same thing that Kevin did for the reason that I said before that when a company takes your advice, it just makes the review so much easier. Um, so the 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 impact of taking FDA's advice is almost always positive. Whereas if you um, go against it, I mean, sometimes there are certainly reasons to go against it if you have the proper justification, but um, going with FDA's advice, assuming you are on board with it is, is always great. Yeah, and, and you can I'm just sure stick the companies like to... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, 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 no sorry. sorry, Carol. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think the companies probably appreciate it too if they can keep the same reviewer uh, because you get, you get to building that relationship and having some continu continuity and it's just easier if you can keep, keep the same reviewer. Yeah, definitely. I was just going to add, there's always a learning curve when you get these new devices. So if you already put in that effort in the in the first half, mm -hmm. it just smooth, it just speeds up that review in the second half. So let's talk about some logistics of the of the meeting. What's better, in person or teleconference? Like what are what are the pros and cons, Nance? What do you think? It's a, I really like the in person when we don't have COVID because I love that interaction that you get with the lead reviewer as they're walking you back to the room, and that interaction when you're you know, leaving the room in that hallway conversation. I sometimes learn more in those five minutes of casual talk mm -hmm. than I do. And, and it also allows the subject matter experts you brought from your team to meet with the subject matter experts, right, that from the other team. So, you know, the statisticians can talk to each other. You know, we had one clinician that came up uh, to one I was at and they were just like, you could tell they worshiped the clinician our client had brought, right? Like, they're <laughs> like, I love your publications and what are you doing next? And and you just, you develop that, right? It's like, uh, you know, you could just tell they were in awe. The other thing you see is I once saw, you know, the microbiologist in the back of the room shaking their head no, <laughs> everything the lead reviewer was saying and the branch chief. So it's like, 
I knew there was an opening, right? That the microbiologist was gonna agree with our approach and how we were gonna submit it, even though, right, the official response and the response was no. You know, I knew there was at least a little bit of a crack that maybe we could come at it with a slightly different angle to get the result we wanted. <laughs> Well, and, and you can't see body language over the phone. And I've been on pre-subs before where FDA's put us on mute so they could talk amongst themselves, which is, is kind of odd, but they wouldn't do that in the real meeting, right? So um, I think person to person is always better. It's harder to say no to someone when they're sitting in front of you. Uh, but where we are today, and, and obviously they say it's, it's faster to set up the teleconferences. So, and I think it says too, right, if you have a novel device, sometimes it's better to have the face-to-face -face meeting so you could take the device and FDA could actually look at it. It's so funny you mentioned that mute thing, Carol, because I think it's always one of the pros that FDA cites in favor of a telecon. Because if in person, if you ask a hard question, FDA can't sidebar this and then come back with an answer. They'll say, oh, you know, we'll discuss this and we'll come back to you. And you don't get an answer right away versus a telecon. But you on mute, they can discuss it, come to an agreement and then tell you on the spot, like what their <laughs> thinking is. That's true. Hmm. That's true. Yeah. That how much difference in time is it? How, how much difference in time is it to get a teleconference versus in person? Is it months? Oh, scheduling? Mm -hmm. so I would say it's pretty significantly. So from a logistics perspective, um, especially with the reorg and everything, there was actually a limited amount of space of conference centers in FDA. So I remember it was always hard to start finding like booking rooms that could fit everyone. So before I left, I know some of the bookings could have been months out just to get a free free wow. room that could, yeah, get everyone in versus telecon. And maybe you can always just ask that too, I guess, in your when you're talking to the project manager who's leading the QSUB, like, mm -hmm. hey, is there a time difference? Like if we do a QSUB, like what's the difference between doing an in-person or a telecon? And I'm sure they'd be able to tell you pretty quickly. But at least as far as the, the guidance goes, I think, uh, you know, they say um, written feedback within 60 days or something like that. And a teleconference, they have a little bit bigger of a window. Uh, okay. But it's, it's not a huge window, though, of a difference. It's maybe a couple of weeks extra that they give if you need to book a teleconference. But they okay. still need to give you the written feedback by 60 days, give or take. Yeah, I will add, I think regardless if it's telecon or um, in person, you should always just have a meeting in the books. Because regardless of if you have a telecon or in person, they will still send you uh, written feedback. And then once you receive that written feedback, you can cancel it. Versus if you choose just that written feedback, it's so much harder to schedule a meeting afterwards if you want one, then you okay. can cancel it. Just another note question on, from the... Sorry, I was just gonna add uh, just one more comment on uh, in-person. Uh, if you have any folks coming from uh, outside of the US, definitely let your uh, reviewer know because there's some extra, potentially some extra security paperwork that needs to be filled out. So just keep that in mind. Okay. Good to yes, know. I had that happen once. I, I brought uh, someone from Europe to a pre-submission meeting when I was pretty new in regulatory and didn't realize that extra paperwork was needed. And fortunately, FDA was very, you know, accommodating, but it was a moment of panic <laughs> that our clinician was not going to be able to be in the meeting. Okay, question from the audience. How does one ask the FDA to assign the same lead reviewer that was involved in the pre-sub? Is it in the cover letter or? You know, is it frowned upon to ask? How do you do it? Yeah, so you technically 
enhance be requesting your reviewers? So I guess it really depends on who your reviewer is and what his capacity is. Um, I think I used to do it just, I thought it just made everyone's life easier, made the sponsor's life easier, made all my colleague reviewer's life easier for not having to take a new file. Um, so that was definitely a preference. I, I don't think there's an actual right way. You can maybe discuss it with your reviewer during your pre-sub meeting saying, hey, we're thinking about submitting this, like would you be able to? Um, but there really mm -hmm. isn't a, like a correct way. Like you should, yeah, I, I think there's no right way of being able to say like, I want this reviewer, right? Because I might introduce bias into your review if you're just constantly asking yeah. for like all your files all your submissions like yeah i could sort of see maybe just sending an email so you have a, your lead reviewer for the pre-sub and you're about to submit your submission maybe just send him or her an email saying hey i'm about to submit my 510k it would be great if you could be my lead reviewer just for continuity and just kind of walk away from that just letting them know that it's coming yeah. in soon so they can talk to their branch chief and even yeah. in your cover letter, I guess you don't request a reviewer, but you can say we did submit a Q sub, which was led by this person. Yeah. I think team leads, like everyone in the management chain tries to keep it consistent with the reviewer. Um, mm -hmm. you, they even try to do that with device, um, <laughs> not device types, but like if you reviewed, say like device A once and it comes out with supplement and it comes in with a new 510K down the line, they may still try to mm -hmm. give it to you because you're just familiar with it. So I think they try to, to ensure that consistency. Um, so I guess if you just list that QSub with who your reviewer is, but not directly say, hey, I want this reviewer, <laughs> right? That could be a way. Okay, good approach. Okay, so next question. There's variability in the number of people from FDA on the call. And sometimes there's a huge FDA crowd on the line. How is that determined? Brian, can you tell us from FDA? Yeah, so obviously at, at a minimum, the, the lead reviewer and the uh, usually the first line manager I believe that's what the, the guidance stipulates as the minimum number of folks who would be at your pre-sub meeting. But um, if you have consultants, if your lead reviewer had consultants participating in the review, chances are they would be invited as well. Uh, depending on the uh, sort of the, the potential impact of the pre-sub and the subsequent submission, you might have uh, upper level management is there. Uh, you can also maybe just have new reviewers there. So uh, bringing new reviewers into pre-sub meetings is a good way to give them exposure uh, to devices, to elements of the regulatory process that's sort of low pressure. It's usually not people yelling at each other at, at these meetings. Mm. Uh, so you could have a whole host of characters, uh, I shouldn't say characters, of <laughs> federal <laughs> officials uh, at your... <laughs> Uh, at your pre-sub meetings, uh, but your your reviewer will tell you or should tell you exactly who's going to be at your meeting uh, before you actually have it. Yeah, I think it it's gets worse. Good. Yeah, when you oh, get into combination products, and then Cedar brings all of their folks too, so you get that whole litany, and they tend to bring. It seems to me they always have observers, so they bring their expert, and then they bring three people that they're training to be experts. <laughs> I mean, I think these the, um, telecons are usually really good experiences for new reviewers because as new reviewers, they don't get, they usually don't get assigned these difficult Q subs or they don't get the opportunity to lead in-person meetings or telecons really. So I think bringing them earlier on lets them kind of see what those processes are like because most mm -hmm. likely they won't lead one for, for the first year or so. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are some best practices to improve the success of a pre-sub? What are your favorites? Nance, you want to start? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with the package, right? You know what questions and what answers. You know, I always like to plan. If FDA says this, this is how I'm going to respond. If FDA says this, this is how I'm going to respond. And worst case, oh no, they want this. <laughs> you know, what's my exit strategy from that response? So I always like to do that three-tiered. You know, if FDA says mm -hmm. A, B, or C, what am I going to respond with? So I think that's good. I think the other is prioritizing an hour to have a conversation. So those four questions that you're just going to do because FDA suggested it, don't spend your time in the meeting talking about those. Just acknowledge, thank you for your feedback. We understand <laughs> and we will accommodate. And then move on to the one clinical study that you know is going to cost you millions if you have to do it the way it's outlined. <laughs> Um, so just focusing think, on that. Sorry, Nancy. Yeah, I think prepping for the pre-sub is really important. I always have a, a pre-meeting call with everybody who's going to be on the teleconference. And we talk about who's going to speak to what topic, um, especially if there's physicians involved or people that are new to these pre-submission calls. We talk a little bit about how you should talk and answer questions and you know, be cognizant of the topic and, and try to keep them on topic. Sometimes that's hard. Um, it's not a sales call. This is a scientific call. We're trying to get some answers. And uh, But I think prepping beforehand and really making sure that everybody understands the goal, who's going to say what, uh, who's going to answer which questions. And as Nancy said, try to think about other questions that the reviewers might ask you and be prepared. And then always you can say, thank you for that feedback. We need to think about that some more. Don't feel like you have to agree with something. You can always take time and say, we need to talk about it. Good. Brian? I think, so two things. One, for just pre-sub success in general, there is a great guidance document that came out last May, May 2019. Um, they have a bunch of great questions at the end of it, example questions. Uh, the types of questions that FDA likes to see in these submissions. A lot of new guidances have examples. And when I was at FDA, uh, Jeff Shearn would always push us to include examples, include examples. Companies want to see these examples of questions of scenarios. And they're always hard to come up with because you didn't want to shoot yourself in the foot mm -hmm. for an example that wasn't perfect. But uh, the questions are at the end are great. Um, and I guess I would also say with respect to meetings, um, as Nancy said, you, you just have that hour. And I would always begin my pre-sub meetings with telling the company, uh, this is your hour. Uh, so you need to run it as you want to run it. And sometimes that could mean interrupting FDA. Um, sometimes there are folks there who will just go on and on and on. Uh, this doesn't happen a lot, but I've, I've seen this a few times where they're just to, you know, go back to philosophizing, they'll start philosophizing and you don't have the time to listen to them. Um, so you be prepared to be polite and interrupt if you need to, because you just have those 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. Good advice. Is is there anything people should stop using pre-subs for? Like, just quit trying that. Nancy, you're smiling. Do you have one? <laughs> I do. If you are not going to listen to the advice, right? Like, you're starting your test. You're not going to wait for the feedback on that protocol before you execute it. Don't bother to ask, right? Because it's too late to do anything about it, you know? And you're, I, I think all you do is tick off the re reviewer, my experience. Like, you asked me, I told you, and you didn't listen to me. Like, don't do yeah, that. Exactly. It's better to 
That's great. Yeah, because you have to say in the CDRH cover sheet that you did have a pre-submission or, or talk about that when you get to your marketing submission. The reviewers are going to go back and look at the meeting minutes. So, yeah, it's, it's not to your advantage not to follow what they suggest. Exactly. Um, I think I'd also add for um, devices where you have a, a clear predicate uh, maybe not exactly a carbon copy of a predicate device, but where the substantial equivalents, again, I'm sort of focusing on 510Ks because that's where most of the pre-subs are, it seems. Um, if you have a great predicate, there's really no need to wait for uh, the pre-sub feedback. Um, I mean, FDA will gladly review your pre-sub and say, yeah, this is the right predicate. Do the same testing that they did and you should be good to go. Um, but probably not the best use of the pre-sub program. Okay, last question. We'll end on a fun, a fun one. Do you have any funny stories to share of from your, your pre-sub meetings? I'm sure there are some <laughs> on both sides. Carol's laughing, so we'll start with her. What do yes. you have, Carol? Yes. So this didn't happen to me. This was one of our colleagues, uh, Christine, set up a, a WebEx pre-submission and she kicks off the call, everything's going fine. And the client has their vendor on the call and Christine looks and she thinks he's wearing a peach colored shirt, but then she looks more closely and he doesn't have a shirt on at all. And he's at his kitchen table stretching. And then he picks up his laptop and he carries it through the house. So she's seeing this shot of his chest. He goes into the bathroom, puts it up on a shelf and he starts shaving. And she's oh she's got to put her phone on mute because she just can't can't control you know the giggling. And when his time to to respond would come, he'd stop shaving, look at his laptop, you know, give his answer. Then he'd go back to shaving. So you know the bottom line is wear a shirt if you're going to be on the WebEx. And maybe multitasking isn't such a good idea. That little white light at the top of your laptop means your camera is on. <laughs> Any other any other stories from anyone? My so my favorite was we got the meeting response back from FDA the day before our meeting. And in the middle of it, they had copied and pasted the internal email from one subject matter expert into the review. So we got the behind the scenes look <laughs> of what they really thought. Like, because they were kind of like, it's okay if that's the way you want to do it. That's not the way I would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. What were you going to say, Kevin? These, yeah, so for these in-person meetings, there's a lot, a lot of these times uh, companies will bring in their products and do like a product demonstration, maybe showing it on like a sawbone model, sawbone model or something. Um, but there was one example where a company was trying to demonstrate how strong their device was. So they like, put it on the ground and they stepped on it and then they jumped and said, oh, look, it doesn't break and like to your credit yeah it didn't break but it also wasn't a weight-bearing implant so it didn't really <laughs> have too much merit to what they were talking about but it, it didn't break and they're like would you guys want to step on it I'm like oh no i think we're i think we're okay on our side we trust you <laughs> so i had uh, an example like that as well where uh, it was when i was a newer reviewer so like i said they sometimes bring in newer reviewers to these pre-sub meetings um, and it was for a spinal implant, uh, sort of a novel spinal implant. So they brought in the, some company representatives, but they also brought in this very, very prominent spinal surgeon. Um, and so this gentleman walks in, the first thing you notice is his suit, which is just like 
very clearly very, very expensive. And then he sits down and starts playing with the device and his, uh, you know, his shirt sleeve rolls up and you can see this watch, which is just, you know, like at least $20,000. Oh and God. for the entire meeting, I'm just staring at the guy's watch because I was like, leave. <laughs> So I guess the, the moral of that story is like, it's important to dress professionally, but like leave the $20,000 watches at home because <laughs> FDA could get distracted. <laughs> All right. That's a good one to end on. Thanks, guys.